Hi there, I'm Travis, and this is the Why Is That Podcast. Welcome back to the Why Is That Podcast. I hope you had an excellent couple of weeks. In today's episode, we are discussing national flags, specifically why it is that countries use flags to denote national identity and where that tradition originated. So basically, why is the Union Jack the symbol of the United Kingdom? Why is the Sunmark flag the symbol of Japan? And why the Stars and Stripes are the symbol of the United States? In the United States, this past Thursday, June 14th, was Flag Day. Flag Day marks the date on which the Second Continental Congress of the United States adopted the flag of the United States, so I figured no time like the present to discuss flags and their role in national identity. The introduction in today's episode was the American Pledge of Allegiance, which exhibits a great example of just how powerful a symbol a national flag has become. The idea of a flag as standing as a national symbol is a fairly recent phenomenon. The practice is typically dated to the so-called Age of Sail that is dated from 1571 to 1862 and was the result of sailing ships having a need to identify themselves to other vessels. As ships started sailing further away from the shore or further away from their home countries, there became a need to identify ships from a distance. In the ancient world, it appears that the most common form of naval identification came from dying or placing symbols on the mats rather than flying flags. In ancient naval battles, it was more common to use flags as a signaling tool than an identifying tool. For instance, red meant attack. On land, the armies typically used symbols on shields or specific types of armor to distinguish themselves from the enemy. Some military banners were used as standards, but it was more common to have a symbol such as the Roman Aquila, or eagle, standard, which was made of gold rather than a flag. Flags as we know them today really did not become a thing until the so-called medieval time period as a part of heraldry. However, in those days, the flags would have been more associated with a specific king or military commander rather than as a symbol of the people. The oldest example of a flag appears to be the temple flags of the ancient Egyptians. Colorful flags were said to decorate the poles on the face of the temple pylons. Based on our records, these flags seem to appear with the earliest Egyptian temples and are the inspiration of the hieroglyph that we have found to mean God. The God hieroglyph is an image that appears to be a flagpole. Unfortunately, we have yet to discover one of these temple flags for further study. One of the big obstacles of stating for sure that the Egyptians had the first flag is that by the nature of flag materials, that is cloth, a flag does not have the ability to survive after the decline or collapse of a civilization. If it were not for the hieroglyphs and various textual evidence, we would have no idea that the ancient Egyptians had flags. As such, it is difficult to state whether or not civilizations of the same age or older than Egypt use flags or not. It should be noted that based on the information we have, the temple flags would not have represented Egypt as a whole, the way our flags represent the whole of our countries. Instead, the temple flags represented the god of the temple, therefore the Egyptian flag would have been far different from our modern flags. The oldest surviving flag is known as the Shaddad Standard. It was discovered in Iran and dates back to the Iron Age. The most accepted dating of the flag is circa 2400 BCE, so over 4400 years ago. The reason it still survives today is that it was made of metal. I posted a picture of the Shaddad Standard with the episode notes at whyisthatpodcast.blogspot.com if you are interested. The flag depicts a man and woman facing each other, which was a recurrent theme in the region's art at the time, and is held by a 128-centimeter metal axle that allows the flag to turn. 
The axle has a metal eagle with open wings on top. It is called the Shaddad Standard as it was found in the city of Shaddad, which was located in the Kavar-e-Lut Desert, which is known as one of the hottest locations in the world temperature-wise. We do not know exactly what the flag represented, but our closest guess seems to be that the flag is requesting water from the rain goddess. If this interpretation is true, then it would seem that the Shaddad Standard would have served a similar purpose to the Egyptian temple flags instead of being a symbol of the area or people. Specifically, the flag would have been a tool to communicate with the gods rather than any type of identifier. Other examples of the more ancient type of flags would fall into the category of vexiloid. I am going to quote the American vexologist Whitney Smith to describe a vexiloid. An object which functions as a flag but differs from it in some respect, usually appearance. Vexiloids are characteristic of traditional societies and often consist of a staff with an emblem, such as a carved animal, at the top. The ancient Romans used a vexiloid that was a red banner with the letters SPQR emblazoned on it in gold with the laurel leaves and a gold fringe. It then had a golden eagle on the top. Other examples of vexiloid come from the Achaemenid Persians, specifically Cyrus the Great. Then there is also Alexander the Great, Ashoka Chakra, and the ancient Carthaginians. These vexiloids, however, were far more akin to military standards or symbols of a specific individual rather than of the nation at large. So by and large, our current use of flags had very few similarities to the use of banners and flag-like items in the ancient world. Modern flags and their eventual adoption to national symbols instead have their origin in medieval heraldry. In fact, vexiology, which is the study of the history, symbolism, and usage of flags, only became its own field in 1961. Prior to 1961, the study of flags was just one of the pieces of the study of heraldry. It was only that recently that it became necessary to separate the two fields of study. The oldest modern flag that is still in use and has seen continual use is the flag of Denmark. The flag of Denmark is known as the Danenbrog, which approximately translates as Danish cloth. The Danenbrog is represented as a white Scandinavian cross on a red background. It technically did not become a national flag to be used by the common people until July of 1854, but the flag has a long history prior to that point. While the Danenbrog was not really the first modern flag, or even the first of the national flags, its status as the oldest continually used flag provides a really great case study for the process of a flag going from a simple piece of heraldry to the national flag of all the Danish people. Therefore, I'm going to describe the history of the Danenbrog and then will summarize its similarities to the rise of flags in general in order to discover the answer to today's episode's question. In the year 1199, Pope Innocent III declared a crusade to defend the Christians of Livonia. Among the crusader kings was the king of Denmark, Valdemir II. In 1219, King Valdemir II's army was in the process of invading the country of Estonia. During the Battle of Lindenice, the Danish army was beginning to lose ground and become disheartened when Bishop Sunnison prayed to the heavens for aid and a sign. At that moment, a red cloth with a white cross fell from the sky and into the hands of the king. Tradition states that a voice was then heard that said, When this banner is raised on high, you shall be victorious. The Danish army then surged forward and won the battle. The men claimed that the flag was from heaven and formed the blessing of God for their heroic crusade. That is a great foundation myth. Flag ordained by God? Wow, that sounds awesome. 
Unfortunately, no contemporary sources mention a flag descending from the skies in the 1219 Crusade, and any existence of the red Danish royal standard with a white cross cannot be documented until near the end of the 14th century. Scholars typically point to the similarities of Constantine the Great's experience at the Milvian Bridge as the inspiration for the legend, and state that the Danes simply picked a great battle to give the flag added luster. The Moors even had a similar experience in which a standard bearing a cross appeared in the sky to them in the year 1217. The difference, though, is that the Moors reported the miracle to the Papal See in Rome, whereas there is no record of the Danes ever having done so. If we give the Danes the benefit of the doubt and say that the flag first appeared to them in 1219 during the battle, then there is an explanation for how the flag flew to them that does not include God sending the flag. This version of the story involves the Order of the Knights of the Hospital of St. John of Jerusalem, although sometimes also known as the Order of the Hospitallers. The military flag of the order is a white cross on a red field. Looks almost identical to the Dannenbrog flag, except that the vertical white line of the flag is centered in the Knights Hospitaller flag, and the Danish flag's vertical line is more to the left. It is believed that if the story of a cross flag falling from the sky is true, then it is likely that the Knights Hospitallers were also fighting at the Battle of Lindenice. The theory would hold that the Hospitallers would have had one of their military flags torn away from its standard holder, then the wind took their flag and flew across the battlefield to the bishop. An alternate theory that dismisses the origin story is that the Danes simply took the flag design from the Holy Roman Empire. The Holy Roman Empire used a red flag from 1200 to 1378, and when the emperor was out on crusade, he would signify the holy fight by placing a white cross on the red banner. The kings of Denmark at the time would have likely known of the Holy Roman Empire's flag tradition and may have borrowed the design to help bring themselves added prestige. Either way, the lack of contemporary sources for the white cross on red banner flag at the battle makes both of those stories seem skeptical. The first documented use of the Dannenbrog is during the reign of Aldemar IV, who reigned from 1340 to 1375. The white cross on red banner is confirmed in the Getter Armorial, which was compiled by Claes Henanzun and displays 1800 coats of arms from all over Europe in color. The compilation provides one of the most important sources on medieval heraldry, but also gives us certainty that the Danish monarchy was using the Dannenbrog at the latest by the 1370s. The Gerarmorial shows a red flag with a white cross on the helmet above the coat of arms of the Danish king, Voldemir IV. The Gerarmorial was compiled sometime prior to 1396, though I was unable to find an exact date. The name of the flag, Dannenbrog, which seems to translate approximately to Danish cloth, is first attested in 1478. Twenty-two years later, in the year 1500, the Danish king Hans attempted to conquer the Republic of Dishmarschen, but was roundly defeated at the Battle of Hemmenstead, where several of the king's military standards, the Dannenbrog, were lost. In the 1520s, it was widely published in Denmark that the flag that was lost at the battle was the one sent from heaven all the way back in 1219. This appears to be a specific public relations choice to rally support for a continued campaign against the Dithmarschen to win back the standards. The prominent spreaders of the myth at that time were the Danish historians Christern Pettersen and Peter Olsen. As expected, this rallied public support, and in 1559, King Frederick II was able to lead his own Dithmarschen campaign, and in it, he recaptured the standard. Then, in 1601, the popular Danish historian Arild Hutfeldt wrote his multiple-volume work, the Chronicles of the Kingdom of Denmark, in it, he included the story of the Dannenbrog being sent by God at the Battle of Lindenice, 
and ever since then it has been part of the Danish mythos that the flag was heaven-sent and been in use since 1219. To help you understand the importance of the myth of the heaven-sent flag to the Danish people, I have quoted the Danish professor Kaspar Paladin Muller, who gave a lecture in February of 1873 and stated the following, The legend of Danenbrog descending from heaven is so deeply rooted in the hearts of the Danish people that every child hears of it in the home or at school, with or without an explanation. It will not do for historical criticism derisively to ignore this fact. No, criticism must accept the story Dan and Brog as it is, and try to come to an understanding of its nature and origin. After King Frederick II's victory brought the original flag back, the myth of the flag origin was firmly entrenched. From that point forward, the Dan and Brog was strictly related to the King of Denmark and served as his personal standard. King Frederick II even started the tradition of having his coffin draped with the Dannenbrog. This has since become an established funeral tradition of the monarchy, and has since been followed by each succeeding monarch, which includes most recently the death of King Frederick IX in 1972. The king's men also started to follow the tradition in the 17th century as a show of loyalty to the king. Frederick IX's heir, Queen Marguerite II, is still living and is currently the second longest reigning Danish monarch in history, but as she has routinely worn or displayed the Danenbrog, presumably she will also continue the tradition of the monarch draping the flag on her coffin. So first the Danenbrog was used specifically as a symbol of the king and was a part of the royal heraldry. King Christian IV, who reigned from 1588 to 1648, was the first to decree that all of the army's flags should bear a small Danenbrog in the upper inside corner. It was then thought of as an honor reserved only for the most renowned army units to carry the Danenbrog alone. The next evolution occurred during the Age of Exploration that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. First, the King's Navy needed a way to display their loyalty to the world. Additionally, if there was a sea battle, it was a good thing to know who were the friendlies, and the quickest way to determine the nationality of the ship was the naval ensign. An ensign essentially being the name of a flag flown on a naval seafaring vessel. The watercolor by Rudolf de Winters, Berg von Pulver und Fuhrwürken, serves as a proof of the Dannenbrog being used as a naval ensign. In this time period, the painting depicts a naval battle between Denmark and Sweden in which the Danish boats proudly flew the Danish flag. The naval battle depicted occurred in the 1560s, and the painting was created in 1585. During the so-called Age of Exploration, suddenly a lot more of the king's subjects spent significant time at sea, either in the form of explorers venturing around the globe, or merchants who transported goods by sea. Once again, I need a rose to easily signify the loyalty of the ship's inhabitants to the world at large. For the Danish, that sign was the Dannenbrog. In 1842, King Christian VIII decreed that all army flags were to have the red banner with white cross along with the army regiment number. This was a pretty large revelation. In the case of a single flag representing the whole of the army rather than several different standards, Denmark was one of the first to adopt such a measure. In Europe, France's use of the tricolor for their armies during the time of the French Revolution seems to be the first instance of such a development. Within the Kingdom of Denmark, the adoption of the flag was very popular. In September of 1842, the Danish theologian and writer NFS Grundvig gave a speech in which he proclaimed, The Danish flag, by once more becoming the banner of the whole kingdom and the whole people, would herald the triumph of Danishness within its sphere. In this our land, this fatherland of all true Danes. This quote helps set up our next major impactor for the flag as a national symbol, nationalism. In this case, Grundvig refers to nationalism by saying Danishness and all true Danes. 
Up to this point in our story, the Dannenbrog has been the domain of the powerful, but in the 1800s, as nationalism grew, so did the idea that the flag belonged to the people rather than just to the king. If you have researched the 1800s in general, or in the podcast world if you listen to Mike Duncan's Revolutions podcast, then you have experienced the continued theme of the rise of nationalism. While this of course had political and societal impact, it also changed the status of the flag, and it is in this atmosphere that flags made the jump from a personal identifier to a national one. Let's continue following the Dannenbrog for a specific example. In episode 5, we briefly discussed the Age of Enlightenment's effect on the development of political theory in reference to the separation of powers. In addition to political theory, the Enlightenment era also helped to bring new proprietary and Enlightenment ideas to the world at large, but especially to the Western and European world. In Denmark, the minister Johann Friedrich Strunesi was one of the leaders of governmental reforms until his death, and by and large, the middle class of Denmark embraced the ideas espoused by the Enlightenment thinkers, which led to an increased interest in personal liberty. As those ideas circulated and the authorities began to relax censorship laws throughout the country, a sense of Danish nationalism began to develop. This initially took the form of increased pride in the Danish language and culture. The ugly side of that growth in pride was that it also saw laws that banned foreigners from holding governmental posts and a growth in antagonism between the Germans and the Danes. The first half of the 19th century saw a continued growth of these nationalist tides until the landmark year of 1848. 1848 saw a huge wave of revolutions and reform throughout Europe that saw a push towards more democratic and liberal governments compared to the absolute monarchies of the past. In Denmark, this year of revolution started when King Christian VIII died in January of 1848 and saw the farmers and liberals demand for a constitutional monarchy. The new king, Frederick VII, agreed and a new constitution was written for the country. Unlike many of the other countries, Denmark did not see the constitution overturned by reactionaries after the springtime of the people that was the year of revolution ended. The Danish constitution has been most recently updated in 1953, but the principal form harkens back to this constitution that was signed on June 5, 1849. The growth of nationalism coincided with a need of nationalist symbols for the people to place that sense of identity. The Dannenbrog is a heaven-sent symbol of God's divine favor of the Danes, made for the perfect symbol. One of the earlier examples of the growth in identifying with the flag comes from a patriotic song written by B.S. Ingemann in 1807 as the Danish army fought in the Napoleonic Wars. A translated version of the song goes something like this. From heaven thou didst fall, thou Denmark's sacred sign. Over heroes thou didst wave, who in destined embrace did sing, thy shining cross hath raised. To heaven Denmark's praise. By the 1830s, there was no stemming the tide of Danish nationalism, and with it the need of the people to display the flag proudly, but the government still tried to resist. On January 7, 1834, private citizens were outlawed from displaying the Dannenbrog. The government was trying to reserve the right of displaying the flag to the king, the military, and those who had been awarded a spot in the Order of Dannenbrog. However, at the outbreak of the First Schleswig War in 1848, the people decided to display the flag proudly anyways. This was partially due to the nature of the First Schleswig War. The war was fought over the duchies of Schleswig and Holstein, but at its core was a war of nationalism. The duchies were home to primarily two groups of people, one who identified as hailing from the Danish culture and tradition, and the other as hailing from the German culture and tradition. As the German Confederation attempted to unify all Germans under a single political unit, the conflict erupted in Schleswig and Holstein, 
as the people living in the duchies attempted to figure out which state to pledge their loyalty, the new German Confederation or the Kingdom of Denmark. The First Schleswig War was a departure from past styles of war that pitted two countries or kingdoms against each other, as the question at stake was not who should rule them, but who the people should identify with. Something that is fairly normal in today's world, but a very new idea at the time. In order to rally support and show unity with the ethnically Danish people of Schleswig, the common person in Denmark needed a way to easily highlight their Danishness and how they were different from the Germans. The Dannenbrog offered a tangible symbol of this difference. During the war, a marching song was written that showed what the Danish foot soldiers were fighting for, that is, the flag, the mother tongue, and the native soil. The song was called, The Day I Marched Away. Here is a verse. Of Dannenbrog they tell, from heaven to earth it fell, raised high on every ship in the standard bearer's grip. It bears its own fair name, no other flag like this. The Germans they have mocked it, and trod it underfoot, unworthy fate for such a flag too old and far too good. And therefore will I fight, brave soldier of the king. Hooray, hooray, hooray. After the war resulted in a Danish victory that kept Schleswig and Holstein independent from the Germans for the moment, there was no turning back the clock of the national flag. On July 7, 1854, the law that prohibited private use of the Dannenbrog was officially repealed and citizens began to proudly display the Dannenbrog. This practice grew so popular that the notion of the Dannenbrog as the national flag of Denmark grew so strong that on April 10, 1915, displaying any other flag besides the Dannenbrog on Danish soil was prohibited. This represents a small overview of Danish history with a focus on the development of the role of the flag in society. The Dannenbrog provides a good example for how a military banner or piece of heraldry grew from representing a very specific individual or individual military unit to instead representing the idea of nationhood. As I mentioned, the Dannenbrog is the oldest continually used flag in the world, but it was usually not the first flag used in a new way. However, despite not being the first flag of each new tradition, it still provides a template for how the development occurred at least in the Western European world. In today's world, every nation has a flag, and most have specific rules for how to care for a flag. If you Google just about any country in the world, the right-hand side of the Google search will show a map of the country's territory and its flag. We have reached a point where the most recognizable symbol of a country to the world at large is its flag. This is greatly different from the days of Rome where the Aquila, or eagle, was the symbol of the nation, or the days when the symbol of Sparta was the lambda on their shields rather than on a flag overhead. The change is one of society in which we as people have come to identify ourselves as a specific group of people or specific culture. This contrasts the days of old when it was more common to pledge loyalties to a specific king or lord who was in charge of our protection. In today's world, our loyalty is with the state as one people dedicated to the state. This is the result of a movement of nationalism and partially due to our increased reliance on globalization. In the United States, the flag has been pretty important since June 14, 1777, and during the War of 1812, this importance was given words with the Star-Spangled Banner. The soldiers of the wars only had their hope renewed by the thought that the flag was still there. The Pledge of Allegiance, which we heard at the beginning of this episode, did not come into use until after the Civil War in 1892, and Congress did not adopt the use of the pledge until 1942. So you can see, even in the United States, the rough timeline of the changes of the status of the Dannenbrog is similar to the growing use of the Stars and Stripes. I plan to cover the development of some specific flags at a later date, 
including the flag of Japan, which some say is actually the oldest flag, having potentially come into existence around the year 800, along with the likewise very old flag of Scotland, but that does it for today's episode. My sources include the article, The Danish National Flag as a Gift from God, by Inge Adriansen, The Impact of NFS Grenvig on Early Danish Nationalism, by Lorenz Rerup, the Guinness Book of World Records article about the oldest continually used flag, the Encyclopedia Britannica, CRW Flags, Tour Egypt, The World in Between, by Andrew Lawler in Archaeology and the Circle of Ancient Iranian Studies. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I would like to encourage you to subscribe so you are notified of future episodes on your favorite podcast apps such as Apple Podcasts, Acast, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Podbean, and the many, many others. This show's website is whyisthatpodcast.blogspot.com, which includes information about each episode, along with articles I have written about my favorite history podcasts, The Battle of Bader, John Henry Newman, and more to come. You can contact me via email at whyisthatpod at gmail.com, like the show on Facebook, or follow the show on Twitter at whyisthatpod. Finally, if you're enjoying the show, I would greatly appreciate a review or for you to tell a friend about the show. Thank you for listening to the Why Is That podcast. Cheers.